If you have your Bible or if you have your bulletin, I would encourage you to look at Isaiah chapter 60. We're continuing uh, this series through the book of Isaiah. Uh, And this morning we have another, I think all these passages, really the only word is gorgeous. Uh, Isaiah is a good writer, maybe you've noticed. He's a great poet. He helps us see things in our mind's eye, and and today is no exception. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter today. You can see in your bulletin I'm, I'm cutting out some verses in the middle because... It's really kind of a repetition of the other stuff. I encourage you to go read it on your own, but I'm going to read today verses 1 to 7 and then 17 to 22. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, the darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple." And then in verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. This is the message this morning. Isn't that great? Beautiful picture. Uh, There's another place in the Bible that says simply this, and I I want to, to... say it to you and get you to think about, do you know what it means? It says, for lack of vision, my people perish. My people perish for lack of vision. Those are the words of the Lord in another uh, passage in one of the other prophets. Do you know what that means? For lack of vision, people perish. Uh, What it means is God is saying, if people don't have my perspective on life, if they don't have my vision they're going to fall apart. Their lives are not going to be able to work very well. That's what he's saying, if you put it in just kind of layman's terms. 
Uh, we, we know how important vision is, right? I mean, not just, I mean, physically vision's important. If you can't see where you're going and you don't have help getting there, are you going to make it? Chances are not, you know, at least not without getting a lot of bruises on the way. You've got to have a guide if you can't see. Well, the vision that uh, Isaiah is describing here is not one you see with your physical eyes, but it is nevertheless a real vision. It's a vision of the heart. And God is saying, if you don't have, I mean, essentially everybody has a vision. I want to tell you that. Everybody's got some vision of the heart. Some way of viewing their life and viewing the world that's informing the way you're making decisions and the way you're relating to people, what you're doing every single day. Here's the question. God is saying, is it my vision? And here in Isaiah 60, he says, here is my vision. It's this sweeping like, picture of really all of world history here in Isaiah 60. The whole of history is just encapsulated in this beautiful passage where God says, from beginning to end, I'm bringing my people into glory. Every step of the way, I'm the one getting them there. Do you have that vision? Let me ask you a couple questions. You say, well, I don't know. Convince me I don't have that vision, so I know that I need to listen to you. Here you go. Uh, there was, there's a fellow pastor of mine this week that I was talking to, and he said that he often asks his congregation these two questions. And I'm, I'm going to steal those from him because I, they're really good questions. He says the first question he asks a lot is this. Why are you so bored in life? He asks his congregation all the time, why are you bored? Anybody in here bored often? Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe right now, you know, maybe the boredom is, is growing at the moment. I understand, I understand. Why are you bored? Think about that. Why are you bored? And maybe you're not bored, but I think if you're like a lot of people, you are. And isn't that amazing, by the way, that probably more than any other time in history, we have more to occupy us than anybody else, and yet we're the most bored, perhaps, of all the generations of men that have ever existed on the, on the earth. Why are you bored? My pastor friend said, it's always because you lack vision. You don't understand what life's about, really. I mean, you have, you have a vision, but it's not God's vision. His second question, why do you struggle so much with Mondays? We could translate that, why do you struggle so much with your job, with, with your everyday grind? And that's what that basically means. Why do you struggle with Mondays? The answer to that question, too, you lack vision. God says, without a vision, my people perish. Let's look this morning at God's vision. And right at the center of the vision is Jesus Christ. The last two chapters of the Bible, by the way, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, basically just quote Isaiah 60. Go read it sometime. The very last thing that God says in the whole Bible is just to go back to this chapter and just requote it and say, this chapter was about Jesus, my son. And when he comes for the second time, he is going to bring all the things in this chapter to full completion, which are the very same things he started when he was first born. And so if you look at your bulletin, we're going to look at three ways of seeing the glory of Jesus in this, in this uh, chapter. Uh, first of all, we're going to see that the, the light that has dawned, the light that has dawned in verses 1 to 3, then we're going to see the in-gathering that's happening in verses 4 to 18. Uh, and then we're going to see the future that's coming in verses 19 to 22. The dawn that 
of the light that has dawned, the ingathering that's happening, and the future that's coming. First of all, there's the light that's dawned. Uh, verses 1 to 3, I want to tell you, if you look at those, really those are a great summary of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Christmas is coming up. I know we're starting to get excited about that. Pretty soon we'll be uh, seeing a newly decorated sanctuary. We'll be talking about Advent and the, the first coming of Jesus. Well, here's a little appetizer for you. Look at verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, thick darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but yet God is going to bring a light into that darkness and shine. Isaiah was speaking to a future generation, future to him, the generation that was going to go into exile, that darkest of moments. I mean, it is the darkest of moments in the history of Israel, if you read the, the Old Testament story. And yet Isaiah is so quick to say, guys, you can't, when you get to that dark place, don't lose hope because light is going to dawn afterwards. And that light's going to come in a very personal form. It's not just going to be, you know, any light. It's going to be God himself showing up. And we know when we, as we read the Bible that in the years after the exile, God would bring his people Israel back into the land. He would establish them there. And after a good few hundred years of waiting, his son was born into that very land. And the light dawned. Scripture says Jesus is the light of the world. If we follow him, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. Do you believe that this morning? He's the light of the world. If we, if we follow him, we will not walk in darkness. These first three verses say that is the very problem that Jesus was born into the world to save. The very problem he was, he was born into the world to fix. It says there uh, in, in verse 2, thick darkness is over the peoples of the world. You see, it wasn't just Israel in exile that had darkness over their lives because they had been evicted from the promised land. The fact is, every single one of us lives under a thick cloud of darkness, don't we? According to the Bible. And the thick cloud, you know, y'all know, it, it, it is circumstantial. Bad circumstances happen in all of our lives, and so it... It feels like those circumstances weigh on us almost like a heavy shadow of darkness sometimes. But the Bible says you've got to look deeper than that. The thick darkness that enshrouds the people is that people at the same time know God and at the same time don't know God. They, they, they know God. I mean, people know, we know by nature that there is a God. And that God is worthy of our trust and he's worthy of our worship. We should want to worship him. But at the very same time, we don't really want there to be a God to worship and trust. <laughs> Turns out the darkness over our lives and over human beings is really a result of God prejudice. God prejudice. Prejudice against God. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Why in the world would anyone be prejudiced against God? Well, Kings don't tend to like other kings who want to take over their realm, do they? <laughs> and here's the basic thing about sin. We have placed ourselves as if, very important word, just like we saw last week, as if we're the kings of our own lives, as if we're the master of our own fate. And for God to come to us, which he does all the time in our conscience, 
through guilt, through conviction, all kinds of things. For that to happen, it's like a rival king is invading our lives. And man, I don't like that. We don't like that. And so we put up a fight. And yet God says here, on that day, the day when I return my people back to the land, on that day I'm going to dawn such a bright light onto the world that the thick darkness is going to be removed. Not only, look at there at verse 3. Not only is Israel going to benefit from this light, but all the nations are going to come to the light. It's going to be that bright. The birth of Jesus Christ, y'all, was the most revolutionary event in the history of the world, and you need it desperately. You need it desperately. It was revolutionary because for the first time, people far and wide from every nation, tribe, and tongue could finally look in the life and face of Jesus and see their maker clearly, accurately. For the first time they could see he was coming to our lives not to destroy us by taking the reins from us. He was coming to save us by taking the reins from us. For the first time we got to see that. And that begins a process of worldwide transformation. Uh, you may have uh, heard of or read or watched the movies of the Chronicles of Narnia. In the very first movie, which was actually not the first book, but that's for another time that we can discuss and talk about. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was the first movie, the whole kingdom of Narnia, remember, is under winter, but it's never Christmas. The winter never ends because a witch has taken over the whole realm. But little signs begin to appear on the outskirts of Narnia of spring, like little shoots begin to come up through the snow. And some of the people and the animals that live in Narnia begin to recognize that a prophecy is being fulfilled. And then there's this famous line, I think, I think actually it was spoken by Mr. Beaver. And right now you may be thinking, this is weird. I mean, whatever this guy's talking about is weird. Just hang with me, right? There's a beaver that talks, all right? And there's a lion that saves the whole realm. And the beaver says this, they say Aslan the lion is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. That's why we're starting to see the spring beginning to come to life in tiny little ways. I want you to get that phrase in your mind this morning. Because Christmas is about this, Jesus is on the move. Jesus is on the move. The winter of my life, the winter of my sin and rebellion and all the misery that comes out of it can finally begin to get peeled back because Jesus is on the move. Christianity does not come to you guys and it does not say, hey, here's another method of self-help. I hope you hear that. This morning, I hope you hear this. Christianity is not saying, hey, here's a technique for you to use in order to make your life a little bit better. Here's steps 1 through 10 on how to be a good person. I mean, if it were that, I probably, I would, I'm going to be honest with you, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> if it were that. Because I have tried that and failed that and tried that and failed that and tried that. So praise the Lord. Here's what really Christianity is about. When darkness came from me, light dawned from him. Light came from above. It's not self-help, but it's God's method of rescue. And so I want to encourage you simply this. The upcoming season, the Christmas season, maybe you've never done this, maybe you've done it many times, this is a perfect time for you to deeply consider the claims of Jesus Christ.
what he claims to be, what he claims to want to do in your life. If you've never done it, this is especially important for you. It may be that you even think you've done it, but really your, your view of Jesus and of God is really just based on assumption rather than based on true encounter with the glory that is found in his story and in his message. And so I want to encourage you, carve out some time. Spend some time over this holiday season surveying, considering, thinking about how you might respond to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Get that settled in your mind. What is it that you have done with Jesus in your life? Settle that in your mind. Have you, we might say, sealed the deal with Jesus? Have you sealed the deal where you have received and accepted what he has come into the world to offer? What you could never give yourself? Or are you still trying to pretend like Christianity is just another self-help method? Y'all, Jesus is on the move. Isaiah foretold it 700 years ahead of time. And we see it now 2,000 years after. And so look, if you would, at the second point. Because we got to see also the in-gathering that's happening right now. Uh, starting in verse 4, Isaiah tells uh, Israel, You can actually see the glory of Jesus with your physical eyes as well as your spiritual eyes. Now that might excite some of you because some of you might be struggling to believe in Jesus. You might be having a particularly hard time in your faith and, and not sure how to get yourself out of the struggle. And so they say seeing is believing, and so maybe this you know, kind of piques your interest. Well, look at what Isaiah says you can look up and see in order to help you grasp the glory of Jesus. He says, lift up your eyes and look about you. What, what do you see? All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. You will look at them. You'll see the crowds gathering in and you'll be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy when you see it. The wealth on the seas will be brought into the kingdom of God. I mean, what's he describing here? He's describing what began to happen after the birth of Jesus and what is still happening today. And in case you're interested, you know, those who, scholars, you know, those who have really invested their lives in studying the Bible uh, have disagreed all, all the time about what this section means. Uh, some have said this is really only about the nation of Israel and maybe we're looking ahead for a future comeback of the nation of Israel when it will become like it was in Solomon's day. Other people look at it and say, this, is only, this could only be describing heaven in the future. Not anything to do with right now. I want to tell you, I think both of those are wrong. If I could be so bold <laughs> as to challenge many of the scholars out there. I think what this is describing actually, you've got to see it. Because if you see it, you're going to see this morning something of the glory of Jesus you would not see otherwise. This is describing what is actually happening this morning in the church of Jesus. It's describing what's happening this morning all around the world through the church. The kingdom of God on earth. The scripture says when Jesus was born, it was like the, the sun was dawning over the horizon. It was just beginning to peek out over and dispel the darkness. But that the sun would continue to rise to full height until his second coming. 
So you've got the first coming of Christ and the second coming. And in between, you've got that rising of the sun. And what you see with that rising of the sun is a gathering of people from all the nations to come and bow before Jesus. To come, it says, and even bring their highest treasures, their best achievements, their best gifts, and to pledge them to this new king who has been born into the world. This is a picturesque, poetic way of describing the church. You say, really? Because I look at the church all the time, and man, it don't look this glorious. Well, let's heed what Isaiah says. Lift up your eyes. Look about you. Look again. I think it's worth a second look. I think it's worth a second look to consider that, yeah, that there is a sense in which some of the things in this chapter are not things that we see. We won't see them until Jesus comes back a second time. But I would argue if you look really closely, you'll see many of these very things happening. Is it not true that the message of Jesus is being preached today? All around the world, all around this globe. Isn't it true people are gathering to him because of faith in him? Isn't it true that those people who used to live for themselves, some of you are those people, you used to live for yourself, but now that you've heard Jesus, you've pledged everything to him. All my wealth, all my treasures I bring to you. My children, I I come and carry them on the hip, as it says, and I offer them up to Jesus, my King. Isn't that amazing? And y'all, it's not just people in America who've done this. It's people in every single corner of our globe since Jesus first was born that have done this. Not only that, I love the the verse there in uh, verse 18 where it says that, This city that God is building, this church, this kingdom, will be a place where the walls are called salvation and the gates are called praise. Isn't it true that as God's people gather into churches, tiny churches, big churches, medium-sized churches, new churches, old churches, isn't it true that when we gather, salvation and praise are put on display exactly like this? It's as if the borders of our community together are are the borders of salvation. And we welcome and invite people to come into those borders. Because the salvation's free. The salvation's a gift. It's given by God, not worked up by ourselves. And because of that great gift, isn't it true? We cannot hold back our praises. It's like the very gates themselves to enter into God's kingdom are just marked with praise. Y'all, I'm telling you. This vision that Isaiah paints, and you can go home and read some of the rest of it there. It's just beautiful. Where God's temple is adorned with the glory of new people, more and more people streaming in. I want to tell you, that this morning ought to fill your heart with joy in Jesus. Because it's Jesus doing it. Don't for a moment believe it's because of people like me. I don't think you probably do believe that, but even if you were tempted to believe that, don't. Don't believe it's because of people like you either, or like us, or any of the great church leaders that have ever lived. I mean, God used them, but they were just used. Let me tell you, the gathering of the nations into the kingdom of heaven is Jesus' work and his work alone. It's him who walks in and out among us this morning. Jesus walks this aisle, walks up and down the rows of our little church here at 9 a.m., at 11 a.m., and at 5 p.m. 
And it's Jesus who is reaching out to grab hearts and bring them from darkness into light. And it's Jesus who is inspiring and leading our praise. And it's Jesus that's opening up people to a whole world and a whole life of salvation that they never knew before. The glory of Jesus is proved in the fact that he has built this place and they have come. Isn't that right? Have you seen the movie Field of Dreams? If you build it, they will come. This guy who builds a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield. That's a beautiful picture, I think, of the church. Jesus built a little field of 12 men. 12 men. Most of whom were, you know, just day laborers. You know, they were fishermen. They weren't very specially educated. They weren't specially wealthy or special. But he took those 12 men and he built it. And y'all, have they not come? Does it not show, just like the moon doesn't have its own light, but it shows the brightness of the sun's light? Doesn't the glow of the church, even though it doesn't have its own light, doesn't it show you this morning the glory of Jesus Christ? I remember several years ago when um, the first royal wedding happened, you know, the Will and Kate royal wedding. Uh, I got up really early in the morning to watch it live. And you're like, that's weird. And you may think it's weird, but I don't know. I'm just fascinated by stuff like this. Maybe because it's like history in the making or something. But I got up early that morning and I watched it. And there was a huge payoff. Because I remember thinking, wow. I mean, here's all this. Here is the king of England. The future king of England. In front of millions and millions of people watching. Bow, literally bowing down at the name of Jesus. During the wedding. And I thought, man, man, who would have thought it that day in the barn in Bethlehem? <laughs> who would have thought? That baby that you had to you had to kind of move the feed over a little bit to get nestle the baby into the feeding trough. Who would have thought that baby would one day lead to a king bowing at his wedding day at just the sound of his word and the sound of his name? Now I don't know whether anybody at that wedding really believed or not. But it's, in a way, kind of beside the point. They bowed anyway. <laughs> and it shows something really glorious. This world is not plotless, y'all. When you watch the news, it seems plotless. It seems like just a bunch of random stuff. And who knows who's going to take over next. If this idea or that idea or this person or that person. or It just seems like a whole bunch of chaos sometimes. Other times we try to make sense of life just by coming up with big narratives of our own, you know, psychological narratives, narratives about my own pain and hurt and how I'm going to try to navigate that, or social narratives about how people are going to rise up and make the world a better place. And I'm telling you, none of those things can compare to this narrative. The narrative that Jesus was born into the world, the Son of God as a man, and that that Son of God today reigns over the world in such a way that kings bow to him. And thankfully, people way lower than kings. People like me and you also have been taught from the heart to bow to Jesus and to receive him into our lives. This morning, do you see the glory? I hope you do. One thing I pray about for our church is that when we come, we would not be, we would not be confused by the youth of our church, the youngness of our congregation, the smallness of our new space here. We wouldn't be confused to see it as, as a lack of glory. I hope we don't. I hope we see the glory. And the glory is not of us. The glory is of Christ. 
whether churches are meeting in cathedrals with full choirs and all that stuff, or whether they're meeting in big auditoriums with rock bands, or, or whether they're meeting in storefronts or huts with dirt floors. The glory is in Jesus. Amen? Let's look at the third thing, and this will have to be briefer, but this is a glorious thing, the future that's coming. Because as you read this, you, you'll notice some of the things Isaiah is describing, just, well, they're starting to happen, but they're not fully happening. Especially when you get to the end. Uh, there in verse 19 all the way to verse 22. And I want to tell you, these verses are the very verses that the Bible itself ends with as John quotes them in, Isaiah, in uh, Revelation chapter 22. It says, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set, your moon will wane no more. The Lord is your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Every tear wiped away from the eyes. Here's how it goes. Look again at verse, um, look again up there at verse 3. Did you notice how the, the rising of the sun there in verse 3 was described as a dawn? The birth of Jesus was like the dawn, right? Notice how here at the end the dawn has become the noonday. The sun will one day fully reach its peak. Fully. All the way at the top. And the Bible says when it reaches its peak, when Christ returns, it'll never leave the peak. The glory of the light of God will shine forever over his people. You say, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean for God to be our sun? Well, it tells you there. It says, first of all, it's God's presence. God's going to be with us forever, face to face. No, nothing, no barriers in between us and God. We're going to be brought into the fullness of glory. No more sin. No more sin. Let me say that again. No more sin. If you can't get excited about that, then I don't know that I can help you. <laughs> no more sin, no more sorrow, no more misery. It also means, it tells us here, that you and I will know forever, will know forever what God was intending to do through His Son and that He actually accomplished every last bit of it. Jesus the victor, Jesus the conqueror, why was Isaiah telling Israel this? Knowing they were going to go into exile and experience awful suffering. Because, y'all, isn't it true? Knowing how things end up helps you along the way. And I want you to know that this morning. I mean, imagine, have you ever played chess? Um, I, I started playing chess, actually, as an adult, when I was picked to be the chess coach at Mulberry High School as, as a teacher. <laughs> They picked me to be the chess coach, and I had never played chess. And so I had to learn real fast. And the first couple of times I played, it was really bad because I didn't quite know how to win. I, I, I didn't know, like, how the game was supposed to end, like, what, what piece needed to go where. I was thinking kind of a checkers thing where, like, king me at the end and then, you know, work your way back, and it was nothing like that. If you don't understand the end game, you don't understand anything. This is why God says, for a lack of vision, my people perish. If you don't know God's end game, you will perish. I think we'll perish in a, in a number of ways if we don't understand this. One is, 
Isn't it true that you and I, we, we tend always to be defined by the here and now so much, don't we? The stocks go up, the heart goes up. The stocks goes down, the heart goes down. The job is easy, and we're successful, and man, we're loving life. The job is hard, we're hating life. Church is fun, and we like it. Church is not fun, we don't like it. Family's fun, we love it. We love the kids when they're good. When they're bad, we hate it, you know? I mean, it's just up and down and up and down and up and down. Guess what? This portrait gives you something to be defined by outside the here and now. There is another world we're looking forward to. Another world. And if we bring that world into this world, it'll make all the difference. It'll make all the difference. Another way we tend to struggle with this is sometimes isn't it true that we don't like God's timing at all? We struggle. I mean, I, I struggle with God's timing sometimes. Because sometimes God is slow, slow, slow. He likes to take his time. And yet, look at verse 22. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do it swiftly. God's slowness is not for lack of not knowing how to do it. God's slowness is not for lack of ideas on what to do. God's slowness does not come from a lack of confidence that when he does it, it'll work. God's slowness comes from his infinite wisdom, compassion, kindness. It goes so far beyond ours. But we can know this. When it is time, he will do it swiftly. He will not delay because he knows how to do it. He knows what needs to be done, and he is fully confident that when he does it, the alight of an eternal sun, of his presence right there in the very midst of of his people. Let me leave you this morning with a quote, and I want you to think about this. This comes from a man named Paul Tripp, who wrote a book called Forever, which is a really great book about eternity and seeing the end now in our lives. He says this, living in this present world is designed by God to produce three things in me, longing, readiness, and hope. When you see the things around you as permanent, they take on too much importance, and they increase your sense of loss when they're taken away. If you mistakenly think that this life is only about who has the most gigantic pile of possessions and pleasures in the here and now, then your priorities will become unbiblical. Simultaneously, the loss of those possessions and pleasures will become all the more painful and seem all the more unfair. But if you are God's child, today is not your final destination, but a preparation for your final destination. Sadly, many of us cause our own trouble with eternity amnesia. We forget who we are and what we have been given for today. And perhaps most importantly, we forget what is promised tomorrow. The glory of Jesus shining like a sun. Let's pray.